Throughout history, leadership has fundamentally shaped both Israeli and Palestinian societies as well as the prospect for better ties. Strong, courageous leadership can facilitate change. Where are Israeli and Palestinian leaderships today? Are these governments durable? Will the new Israeli government, headed by Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, last? Is Palestinian succession looming? How can each side prepare for the day after Mahmoud Abbas? Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This third season, we have explored a series of policy dilemmas facing Israel, tough calls that require courageous leadership and creative thinking. My name is David Makovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and the Director of the Koret Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute. Each season, we do a series of 10 episodes. This is the last episode of this third season, as we've gone on a journey examining Israel's tough policy decisions with you. In just over two years, Israel faced a whirlwind of elections, four to be exact, The country held elections in April 2019, September 2019, March 2020, and most recently in March 2021. Until March 2021, Benjamin Netanyahu of the Likud held on to the premiership with a razor-thin margin, continuing his 12-year stint as prime minister. Remarkably, after the fourth election of March 2021, the story changed. An extraordinarily ideologically diverse coalition emerged across the Israeli political spectrum. Imagine the equivalent of a U.S. government bringing together Joe Biden, Mitt Romney, Ted Cruz, Hillary Clinton, and perhaps even Bernie Sanders. The parties dubbed the, quote, coalition of change were united by a shared belief that Netanyahu's time as prime minister had come to an end due to his ongoing corruption trials and his statements against Israel's independent law enforcement and judicial institutions. In the 120-member Knesset, or parliament, the government received just 60 votes of confidence and one abstention, just enough to unseat Netanyahu, although they may have received a few more from Arab members of the Knesset if these votes were needed. Notable about this government, led by Naftali Bennett of the right-of-center Yamina party, he serves first as prime minister, and then there's a rotation two-plus years later, with Yair Lapid of the centrist Yeshatid party, who will serve after him, is the historic presence of an Arab party in the coalition, Ram, or the United Arab List, headed by Mansour Abbas. Given its ideological diversity, is this government stable? Is it cohesive? Can it last its four-plus year term? Its concept goes against the grain of the old Israel, accentuate ideological differences, and do not blur them. The new Israel is a focus on the consensual, securing a budget, providing pandemic relief, boosting health and education. Yet the Middle East is no hermetically sealed laboratory. So what happens if there are curveballs, like another round in Gaza, are thrown at this government? Can the government survive? Even apart from Gaza, the Palestinian issue is the most divisive within Israel. Can there be progress there and the government not collapse? On the Palestinian side, complicated and potentially unsustainable leadership dynamics also exist in the West Bank and Gaza. As we mentioned in our recent episode on public opinion, the Palestinian Authority has not held an election since 2006. Legislative elections scheduled for the summer of 2021 were indefinitely postponed. The leader of the PA, Mahmoud Abbas, known by his patronym Abu Mazen, is reportedly 86 years old. He won a presidential election in 2005. His gravitas comes from three sources. First, he was of the founding generation of the Palestinian National Movement. Second, he was actually elected. And third, his election came at a time that there was a parliament that existed in the day before the West Bank and Gaza split in 2007 after Hamas staged a coup and ousted the PA from Gaza. Ever since, there is an entrenched divide between the PA's control in the West Bank and the militant group Hamas's control over Gaza. These two groups represent profoundly different ideologies and have starkly different views on the role of violence in the Palestinian national movement and working alongside Israel. So how does Palestinian succession look today? In the day after Abu Mazen, what will happen to Palestinian leadership? 
Will his small circle of insiders delegate responsibilities between them? Will a single successor emerge? Or will be a collective leadership amid deadlock? What will this shift mean for the PA's relationship with Hamas, for the international community, and for the United States, and for Israel? To discuss these questions, we are joined by Ben Kaspi, Tal Schneider, Raith El-Omari, and Ibrahim Dalalsha. First, I will discuss the durability of the Israeli government with Ben and Tal, and then we'll turn to Raith and Ibrahim to discuss Palestinian succession. Ben Kaspid is a senior columnist for the Israeli daily Mariv. For almost 30 years, he's been a respected commentator on politics, diplomacy, military affairs, and the peace process. Ben has anchored various television news programs and radio broadcasts for the past 15 years. Tal Schneider is a diplomatic and political correspondent for Globes in Israel and is the former D.C. correspondent for Mariv. In 2012, Tal won the Tel Aviv Journalists Association's Award for Excellence in Digital Journalism. Hello, and welcome to you both in Israel. Hi, David. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, Ben, let me start with you. What are the factors that will determine if this new Bennett-Lapid government will complete its term? Yes, this is the $64 billion question, and I think uh, there are two key factors that will determine whether this government uh, sees out its days. The first one is people. Uh, and the second is the forces of nature. Let's start with the people. As long as Netanyahu is around, so is the gravitational force that created the big bang from which this government emerged. If Netanyahu suddenly evaporates, retires, disappears, for some reason, the centrifugal uh, forces holding together the eight coalition parties will weaken, bringing the government maybe down. This government's survival also depends on the trust between Bennett and Lapid, on Gantz's moods, on the whims of the somewhat unpredictable Lieberman, and on Gidon Saar's determination. The left is grateful for every minute in government after spending ages in the opposition, so if the current positive vibes continue, this government stands a good chance of staying put. Now, for the forces of nature... There is a saying in the in the Air Force that what brings you down is what you cannot see. Uh, the rule in Israel is uh, to always prepare for the unexpected. But on the bottom line, I think this government is a lot stronger than it looks. Why do you think it's stronger? You spend a lot of years in Israel, David, but if you've been here now, you wouldn't believe to, to your eyes because suddenly you see ministers that, uh, you know, they, they, they congratulate each other, they, they don't uh, fight on credits. You see, the atmosphere uh, is something totally different that we experienced in the last 12 or 15 years. And another thing, no one in this government have a, a, an alternative. If we have now a new election, SR is doomed, Bennett is doomed, I think that Gantz will not see a lot more than these eight mandates. The only one that can gain from election is Yair Lapid, but Yair Lapid will gain more if he waits two years and become a prime minister. So the, the weakness of this government is its force. Yeah, that I find very interesting. Tom, what, what do you think of, of the, the BB paradox in this, which is on one hand, this government is done as in a reaction to Netanyahu, but they seem to you know need Netanyahu as the glue to keep them together. Uh, or, or do you see other factors that will determine if this government will complete its term? You know, this government is a very unique experiment in the history of the state of Israel. We have never seen anything like it. Um, in an era of a very polarized society. I'm sure in the United States, you all know what it is to, be, to live in a very polarized society. I think Israel's is even more polarized and more dangerous on that aspect. And yet, on the same time, with such a polarized society, you see this um, amazing, unbelievable group of people from all walks of very different ideology come together to form a government because all of them wanted to change leadership in Israel after 12 consecutive years. So I think I've heard from someone saying, you know, the, the current Israeli government may be a worldwide experiment and maybe a social experiment in a polarized situation, how to overcome differences. 
Now, having said that, it's very sensitive and very volatile and it may collapse. But even as, as we are here two months into this government, it's already the experiment is ongoing. So I think this is the BB factor because he is still in the game, because he was here for such a long time, because the devastation on the Israel society polarization is uh, basically his hands doing. Everybody felt it, even from right wing, even his supporters you know, admitted uh, at a certain point that he, I mean, he took us to a four election cycles in, in two years. So the political um, crisis is not, is not done yet. We're not out of the woods. But definitely uh, there is an atmosphere here of a new era. And, you know, it's, you're all saying the, the excitement of this diversity. And the question is going to be, is, is it co- cohesive? And Ben, you know, I was in Israel when that transition happened with the new government. And I sat with, you know, Benny Gantz in, in the center and uh, Gidon Saar on the right and Meirav Michaeli on the left. And I sensed this excitement that you just referred to. And I'm wondering if you think this says something deeper about uh, the maturity of Israel, that it is more in the stage of fine-tuning than a time of ideological ferment. Can this government impact Israel's political culture? I would very much want to believe it. I'm not so naive, but uh, first I want to add to what Tal just said. No doubt that the only uh, person or entity that could galvanize these people together is Benjamin Netanyahu. There is a simple unwritten law in Israel. Election campaigns are devoted to economy and welfare housing, cost of living, the school and healthcare systems. But on election day, people vote on security issues and the long partisan or ideological lines, left or right, liberal or conservative, or I can define it as who will protect me best. And Benjamin Netanyahu was the person that will protect us best for 12 consecutive years. Now, this government is a refreshing, historic, almost unbelievable change. I'd like to believe it's not a one-off, and that other parties and coalitions in the future will also set aside hardcore ideologists, uh, at least temporarily, uh, to deal with the pressing daily needs. But uh, that doesn't look very likely. This is Israel, David. This current change doesn't reflect the, the maturation of Israeli society. It was simple. The only choice left, short of uh, 50 elections. The energy generating this change was the desire shared across the political spectrum, except for the ultra-Orthodox and the radical right, to get rid of Bibi. Just like Tal just said a minute ago, simply put, eight diverse political parties put aside some of their dreams and ideologies to save Israeli democracy. I fear that after the Netanyahu era, the political system will revert to its true colors, left versus right, liberals versus conservatives, orthodox versus secular, Jews against Arabs, etc. And Tal, you think so too? Well, David, it's really hard to predict anything here in the Middle East. As you know, we are living day by day. I mean, we just had riots between Jewish and Arabs, uh, people killing each other at the streets, fighting each other, shooting and, and beating each other. And only a month later, this government that includes Israel's Islamic society party, Ram, uh, headed by Mansour Abbas, you know, joined a government headed by a leader of a settler movement. I mean, how can you expect me to predict anything two years uh, from now? Really, I am, I am hopeful that uh, Yair Lapid will become the prime minister and the rotation agreement will be implemented or executed. But truly, I mean, Lebanon collapsing in front of our eyes. We see what's going on in Afghanistan. But Anything can happen in this region, and and Israel's politics is always under stress from the outskirts. Tal, I want to continue with you and pick up on the point of what you talked about, you know, the violence in the cities in Israel. You know, another one of these people that I met, leaders of this new coalition, is Mansour Abbas. I sat with him, and I was struck by his focus on, you know, the you know, going to Israel's sense of fairness. When he says it's about services, he's not trying to challenge the character of Israel as a Jewish state. How, how, what do you think of him? 
Tal and can his participation change attitudes towards Israeli Arabs and their integration into Israel? We see polling data that young Israeli Arabs want to be more in Israel. And Mansour Abbas's, like I said, his critique itself is we need more Israel. So how do you see that? What does Mansour Abbas's participation, what does it represent? So when you had President Obama stepping into the White House, it was an historic moment for the Americans. But obviously, the way the Black American community was treated by, you know, polices all around the country was not changed immediately or would not, was not changed at all. So history moves very, very slow. I feel this may be the same here. We, we were witnessing Mansour Abbas signing an agreement with Bennett and Lapid, and I was at the hotel where they were signing. I was waiting down at the lobby, and then Mansour Abbas came down to us reporters, and I really felt my heart beating, and I said to myself, you are watching an historic moment in the history of the state of Israel. We have never seen anything like that. And it took one Mansour Abbas, actually, to be the presenter of a moderate Arab modern society. He is a doctor, a dentist, uh, um, not coming from a very modern part of the Arab society, actually from the Muslim conservative religious part of the society. But his head was clear about the goals and the things that need to be done in order to save the Arab society of Israel obviously 21% of our society, and they need a lot of help with respect to infrastructures and policing and so on. So it was an historic moment. But if we think that, you know, things may change overnight, I doubt that. I think it will take probably many more years to fix the discrimination that the Israeli Arab society are still suffering. It's uh, way behind in housing, in healthcare, in infrastructure, in education, in so many ways. So we have lots to work on. But I have noticed that when Rivlin visited uh, the White House and visited the United States, he used this new government and the face of the minority as something to show to the world. He said... We have a new government and we are inclusive and we are diverse. And that was something to be very proud of. So, I mean, you know, when you look outward from Israel, I think this is a both sensitive but exciting uh, change. Tal and myself have been uh, very spect- uh, skeptic about uh, when you ask us about uh, changing Israeli Israeli politics with this uh, new coalition. But if we're talking about Mansour Abbas, I want to be a little more naive and a little more optimistic. You know, there is uh, someone said once that peace would break out if every Jewish Israeli had uh, one true Arab Israeli or Palestinian friend and vice versa. So yes, it's somewhat uh, utopic scenario. But we are certainly seeing progress. I think Mansour Abbas is a whole different story than Israeli politics, and it can be a historic precedent. His decision, a decision to join the government coalition, I think, David, is an event of biblical proportions. And it's not a left-wing coalition. It's a coalition with Avigdor Lieberman, with Gidon Saar, with Naftali Bennett, with Ayelet Shaked, with Zev Elkin, and suddenly the Arab Islamic movement is in this coalition and the sun shines every morning in the same hour. So the, this mythical threat of the right wing for decades that, listen, you cannot do anything with the Israeli Arabs is uh, being smashed in front of our eyes. And I think this taboo is broken. So let me add, Ben, just on ties with the United States, which has been another big issue. The government is talking about bipartisanship. And when it comes to Iran, it's like we will tell the Americans privately what we think. We're not going to hold back. We don't like this Vienna deal. And right now it doesn't look like Vienna is even going to happen. But the word bipartisanship, and that means closer ties with the Democrats, of course, as well as good ties with the Republicans. This also means showing some progress on the Palestinian issue. And yet this is the, the same Palestinian issue 
that uh, could, you know, rock the government. But shrinking the conflict is the new uh, mantra. So I'm just wondering if, do you think, Ben, when politicians say, I want to show the Americans I'm bipartisan, it also means showing some progress on this issue as well? The, the short answer, David, is yes. I believe Bennett realizes the meaning for Israel of bipartisan U.S. support. I cannot say right now whether a government with Bennett, Saar, Elit Shaked, Zev Elkin, etc., can pay the minimal price demanded by a liberal democratic administration on the Palestinian issue. But there are clear indications that the sides are trying to create a reasonable balance between their needs. Without being overly uh, pessimistic, we should keep in mind that this goodwill, goodwill could uh, go up in flames if Israeli-Palestinian violence breaks out. This is about the Palestinian issue. The, the Iran issue is a lot more complicated, but in one sentence, I think that Bennett is not going to be Netanyahu, is not going... Uh, to crash into the administration in a, a two, 200 kilometers per, per, per hour is going to work with the United States and they try to convince the administration that uh, something has to be done vis-a-vis uh, 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 -vis the Iranian activity in the Middle East. Tal, I want to just ask you about the relationship between Bennett and Lapid. So far, and I felt that when I was there and talking there that that there's a sense of trust between them and it seems remarkable and that that trust seems to be at the rock center of this government i'd like you to talk to me about the relationship and i'd like to ask you about the trajectory of bennett himself i'm just wondering if you think bennett can move from the right to the center and not and losing some of his right-wing base actually makes it easier in that regard First off, the relationship between those two at the moment are very good. We've we've seen them walk into politics um, at the same at the same era about eight to nine years ago, and they immediately became uh, you know friends, buddies. But I don't want anyone to think that this is anything different from politics. They are good friends because of mutual interests. Naftali Bennett was really wanted to have a right wing government at first and only went into this government after uh, lots of trials to to build a, a, a right-wing government. So I think that the relationship with, um, between them is good so far, but as a writer, a political writer, I don't expect that to last forever. As per the other question of Naftali Bennett changing his ideology, I don't believe in that. I think uh, he entered into politics with a goal to have annexation in Israel. I don't think a person will change just because of public support or just because of opening up to the world. Naftali Bennett was not narrow-minded Israeli who doesn't know the world. He was in a high-tech scene. He was an executive of high-tech companies. He's not going to be, um, you know, overwhelmed by the international... Uh, attention all the way to make such a huge change. Maybe he's becoming more moderate on the relationship between Jewish and Arab inside Israel. But basically, I don't think that he will change his attitude towards the status of the West Bank and the, you know, Israel's needs to be secure, secured in its borders. And Ben, you get the last word here. And uh, it, can you tell me if you see it the same way as Tal does? It's about time I will disagree with my friend Tal. And I think in the first part, I don't think that the, 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 the connection or the relationship between Lapid and Bennett are based only on mutual interests. I was there in 2013 when they established the famous Brotherhood. And by the way... The creator of this brotherhood was, again, Benjamin Netanyahu. And when they sat together, David, they became friends because they have so many mutual things and interests. And they, they I, I can tell you now, 100% uh, sure that they stay friends even after this uh, short-term government collapsed in 2015. And after having said all that, uh, in the bottom line, I, I don't disagree with Tal. It can collapse. It can collapse because now 
a lot a, a heavier things are on stake and now Lapid Lapid made Bennett prime minister and if Lapid will see that Bennett is uh, hurting his chances to replace him uh, uh, on time there can be a war uh, between them and everything can uh, go up in flames but the basic relationship is very good it's a very uh, a stable base because they really like each other the the second and very very interesting and crucial question uh, as for naftali bennett i don't think he has gone uh, undergone an ideological conversion his beliefs uh, stem from a religious religious right wing vision but and this is a very big but bennett doesn't have a political base right now to which he has uh, to answer he is only moderately religious and his political views are far less radical than people think so basically my bottom line is this never say never would be an appropriate uh, uh, caveat i wouldn't bet on bennett being able, able to veer to the left stranger things have uh, happened here in israel and i can see in my very wild uh, dreams and the uh, minds that uh, bennett can go maybe not all the way but at least halfway to the center. So with that, I want to thank both you, Ben Kaspid, and you, Tal Schneider, for illuminating us about the complexities of Israeli politics. Uh, it's something we're all going to be following for sure. And uh, I just want to thank you very much for your time and joining us today. Thank you, David, for having us. Thank you. Now let's turn the conversation towards Palestinian succession. To help us understand, I had a conversation with Rathal Omari in Washington and Ibrahim Dalalsha in Ramallah. Rathal Omari is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute, and he's the former executive director of the American Task Force on Palestine. He served as an advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during the 1999-2001 permanent status talks, in addition to holding various other positions within the PA. Ibrahim Dalalsha is the director of a private think tank in Ramallah called the Horizon Center for Political Studies and Media Outreach. Prior, Ibrahim served as senior political advisor at the U.S. Consulate General in Jerusalem for two decades. Thank you to you both for joining us, Wraith in Washington and Ibrahim in Ramallah. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. So, Ibrahim, we'll start with you in Ramallah. Who are the possible contenders in, in the Palestinian succession sweepstakes? Do they represent distinct outlooks or just different uh, power centers in Palestinian society? The question is, uh, is, is very simple, but the answer is a little bit, I'm afraid, uh, more complex. But basically, let me try and simplify it. If we are talking about the current state of affairs and imminent or sh short term or, or mid term change, then, you know, uh, I think uh, there were uh, many uh, names that were uh, mentioned out there in press reporting about possible uh, succession and who could or would place uh, uh, President Abbas in, in case of uh, vacancy in, in the presidency position. The, the more, I think, uh, you know, complex um, uh, answer is that could uh, very likely change in a year or two. So I wouldn't just uh, look at it uh, from the perspective of who is more relevant uh, today. But according to the current state of affairs and assuming it will continue for a while, I would actually just note that, you know, folks in the Central uh, Committee of Fatah, which is the ruling party, uh, and the main PLO faction are the ones who stand uh, in line. Yes, there are different power centers, there are positioning. Uh, eventually, this will have to uh, land uh, one way or the other. Mainly, we're talking about the leadership, uh, mainly of uh, Fatah as the ruling party, the dominant party, uh, not only in terms of ruling the West Bank, but also being in the, uh, you know, what the main ruling party of, of the PLO as well. And Wraith, how do you see it? Maybe to zoom out a little bit and just put it in some context. Uh, and the context is that, you know, the succession when it comes will happen in a very uh, fraught uh, situation. On the one hand, President Abbas has made a point over the last years of his, uh, of his rule to make sure that no viable successors emerge. Every time someone becomes strong, popular, he tries to cut them down. So, you know, when Arafat, the former president Arafat died, it was very easy to choose the next uh, president. There were only two 
contenders. Today we're talking about a huge number of contenders, none of whom have a particularly strong uh, advantage over the others. And this is not by default, not by default, it's by design. And to the very uh, institutions, the Palestinian Authority and Fatah, which uh, Ibrahim uh, mentioned, are facing a legitimacy deficit and crisis today. And that makes things more difficult. Now, if you look at the actual succession, I would say there are, you know, I would look at it in terms of categories. If you look in terms of popularity, if there was an election, and that's far from being a certain outcome, there is no doubt the most popular politician is Marwan Barghouti. The problem with Barghouti, of course, is that he is serving multiple uh, prison uh, sentences in Israel, and he's very popular, making the other Fatah leaders actually gang up against him. Now, you look within Fatah, you will find some leaders with actually who have managed to develop a base within Fatah. Limited because of Abbas's uh, policies, but a base. And here two stand out. Jibril Rajoub, former security chief in the West Bank, who uh, using his position as the head of the Palestinian soccer and Olympic committees, have managed to create a very wide base uh, for himself. And there is Nasser Kidwa, who, while not very popular, represents a certain trend that tries to present itself as the kind of carrier of the tradition values of Fatah. Now, move from that, there's another category of people who are today Abbas's inner circle, Hussein sheikh and security chief uh, Majid Faraj. And their power is derivative, but they are hoping that they will leverage that toward the position for themselves. And finally, you have a group who are trying to position themselves as the kind of, you know, uh, compromise or consensus candidates. And two, again, stand out here. Fatah's number two, Mahmoud Laloul, who has no, no international presence, but he still has some presence within Fatah. And the current prime minister, uh, Mohammed Shtaye, who again, has no constituency, yet is trying to present himself as an internationally acceptable technocratic leader. So within this huge pool, these are the contenders. But as I mentioned at the beginning, none of them actually enjoys a clear advantage over the others, raising the, the, the concern that succession might be extremely messy. Let me just ask you to follow up on that, Wraith. And uh, for our listeners, we should say that Kidwa is the um, nephew of Yasser Arafat, is the head of the Arafat Foundation. And I'm sure, you know, wants to run on the idea that he's carrying the flame of the, of the Palestinian founder. But do you think there is an ideological uh, challenge between, let's say, Jibril and the insiders you mentioned, Majid Faraj and uh, Hussein Sheikh? Is it about ideology or is it about power? Um, it's about power. Uh, you know, there might be kind of ideological differences on the margin, but at the core, both groups are a product of the Palestinian Authority and the Oslo uh, period, and they are committed to the basics, uh, two-state ultimate uh, outcome, security coordination, non-violence, fighting terror, uh, etc. There's really no key ideological difference uh, between uh, these two groupings, which, by the way, is a problem. I mean, when I talked earlier about the, you know, the legitimacy deficit that Fatah and the PA face, one of the uh, elements is that most of the public in the Palestinian scene actually no longer believes in these, or at least sees these uh, uh, basics, two-state solution, uh, security coordination, as suspect. So while all of the contenders fall within that camp, they still have a big degree of a disconnect from within uh, their base. Ibrahim, do you agree with Wraith? First of all, Rath is a good friend, and I, uh, you know, we think alike on many issues. I uh, kind of, uh, again, want to go back to um, what I said earlier. You know, the list of names that Rath mentioned are valid or, like, basically in the mix as of today. I'm not sure that the same name or the same names would be listed and the groupings uh, as he laid them out will, will actually be still valid in a couple of years, three years or five years from now. It simply depends on uh, who survives age-wise. Many of the people listed here have like chronic diseases and serious ones. And again, I think that, uh, you know, it would be safer if you want to think, if you want to think short term and discuss the names as if it's happening in a couple of days or months. Yes, I agree, those are the names. And I don't really think that uh, any of them would stand out. But basically, as if, uh, I agree with what he said, that, you know, there are no differences. There are no ideological or political differences. It's a power play, power politics, power centers competing uh, over power. But what I want to actually say in terms of legitimacy deficit is from here, you know, I think what is missing, and I understand the alienation, I understand that people in the U.S., analysts, reporters, observers, politicians, would dismiss completely and entirely what here we stick to, and by we, I mean the Palestinian leadership, we have two models of legitimacy. One is called the PLO, 
And if you go into the history of the PLO, you'll see that every single leader of the Palestinian people as such since the inception of the PLO in 1964 were never elected. And that includes Yasser Arafat all the way up to 1996. And it also includes Mahmoud Abbas, who first was installed as the chairman of the PLO, which is the mother organization of the, of the PA, which is like the source of all legitimacy. And from a Palestinian leadership standpoint, I'm not, again, not arguing for it, and I'm not uh, you know, trying to sell you that. I'm just telling you that if we have diversity in legitimacy in terms of elections, which is very true, elections could be deferred. What will happen is that the institutions of the PLA, which, which PLO, which are mostly self-appointed by the PLO leadership, will elect, you know, interim uh, uh, leaders who will actually, uh, you know, continue to rule and govern the Palestinians for some time before elections can be held. And that scenario in succession needs to be taken into into account. This is the model that many here think of, and that's why you know the, the thinking about deficit of legitimacy in terms of public elections is there, and yes, people think about it, but when it comes to be impossible for many reasons to actually hold elections like we've seen in canceling, in canceling the, uh, the last elections in May, uh, then there are alternative ways. So we resort immediately to PLO institutions and we try to levy uh, you know, regional, international support for an interim period that could be extended. During that period, all of the power centers that we have mentioned will have a role and it will be messy, yes, but it will actually have to, one way or the other, reconcile and reconcile itself with the reality ideas. Can you imagine a power-sharing arrangement that would include both the insiders of Abbas and someone like Jabril uh, and maybe others, uh, where they would each share different hats? Uh, Ibrahim, does that sound possible to you? This is a proposal that was made by one of the people that Leif mentioned, that mentioned as one of the contenders of Jibril uh, al And it was a serious proposal that was discussed uh, in certain Fatih, uh, you know, circles. In fact, it was dismissed outright because in practical terms, you could actually divide, you know, the three positions that President Abbas holds today, Fatih, PA, and PLO. In theory, this would work. The following day, of course, the, the problems will emerge and it will go back to who is actually in control of security services, who's in control of finances, and who's in control of decision making. What I think will, will definitely have to happen is very similar to what, what happened during, you know, uh, the transition of the succession, uh, after, uh, President, uh, Arafat died. And right is right, it was like, you know, only two contenders. But in fact, it was not really that easy of a process. As you mentioned, you know, Fatah had to go to one other leader who eventually in a year time had to be dismissed from, from his job, stripped from resources in order to actually take back that hat to the one person who would have to, uh, to rule. Because, you know, the duality of identity and, and governance in the, in the PA system, PLO system is amazing. And in fact, you know, it's used. Like when Hamas won the PA government back in 2006, everything shifted to the PLO. So we could use these two vehicles, if you will, to avoid, you know, uh, certain complexities. And I think that this is the most likely, and I know it sounds too complex, but in practice, you know, people here would use certain vehicles that are available to them, avoid, you know, rushing and going to elections that are not secured in terms of its outcome, and possible, you know, sort of like power struggle between the different players. And, and I think the interim period during that transition is going to be not only, uh, you know, messy, but I think even hard, and it would reflect itself in a very uh, negative way on the street until one of those power centers prevails. Look, I mean, the idea of three hats is a nice placeholder. You talk to many Palestinian officials and they will say, yeah, yeah, this is where we're going. Um, I don't see it as a preferred option for any of them. In particular, you know, the PLO might be important symbolically and maybe like a safety net, but the real competition will be in the Palestinian Authority and Fatah. Because the leader of the PA and the leader of Fatah each has a chokehold on the other. The leader of the PA has access to budgets, has access to uh, uh, weapons and, you know, security services. And of course, that gives him power. On the other hand, the leader of Fatah also has power because most of the Palestinian Authority staff and leaders come from within Fatah. So the question is, how do external forces have an impact in shaping succession? Will they try or will they not try? So I'm trying to look at the four sets of forces, you know, external Arab states, Israel, Hamas and the Islamists, the Biden administration, I think the U.S. generally likes not to get involved because it feels that things could boomerang. 
So I'm trying to look at these four different sets of actors and to say who wants to play a role and who can play a role in, in looking at succession. And of course, there's always the things that we're not anticipating. Uh, Wraith, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Uh, look, I mean, I, I, I go from the basic truism that all politics is local and the same is true for the Palestinians. And therefore, the ability of any external actor remains uh, limited. Uh, the only external actor within the Arab scene who has the ability to influence Palestinian politics up to a point is Jordan. Uh, for geographic reasons, for political and security reasons. Yeah, the Jordanians are very reluctant to uh, play that role. They're reluctant because, uh, you know, they're afraid if things it's a slippery slope. If you break it, you own it, and no one wants to own that mess. Uh, they're afraid that uh, they have no Arab cover for that. And so, even you know, within the Arab context, there's no one who actually is uh, interested. If you look at Israel uh, and the U.S., uh, they do play, but if you wish, a passive role in the sense that uh, the Palestinians probably will choose a leader who is acceptable to the Arab world, who, are accept- who is acceptable to the United States. But uh, these actors really do not have the ability, the tools, the leverage uh, points uh, to impact it. In terms of the U.S. in particular, you know, to try to impact Palestinian politics requires a very high level of engagement. Today, the Biden administration has absolutely no interest in expanding this uh, degree of political capital. So these actors will, uh, you know, will, will play a passive role, but I don't see them playing an active role. The interesting question here is Hamas. You know, Hamas will obviously have a role in, for sure, no matter what, in terms of, uh, you know, adding to or subtracting from the legitimacy of various uh, contenders, their support will be needed uh, if we get to a point of election. And I agree with Brahim, election is not uh, the preferred option for any of the contenders. But even without that, they would play a role in shaping public opinion vis-a-vis the contenders. The big question to my mind is whether or not Hamas wants to contend these kind of ele- these uh, elections or contend the presidency or at least the leadership of the PLO. And I think this is an unknown. And I think Hamas itself doesn't know how it's going to act. There's no doubt in my mind that Hamas wants to lead the national movement. But the how remains uh, unclear. Whether or not they will choose to contend for any of the leadership of the PA or the PLO will very much depend on the circumstances of the day. But I would not discount it. Ibrahim, how do you see it? If I may just uh, comment on one last thing that uh, Raif said, and I actually second that, and, and, and again, like Hamas always has its own strategies and ways to uh, play into Palestinian politics. As it stands today, they actually declared many times that we're not interested in running or fielding a candidate for the PA presidency. However, they have their own ambitions to go and basically run for their elections for the PLO. So that's why you, you don't rule the, you know, rule their role and influence, including in PA presidency in the future. Um, so that, that is one, one thing. And I agree also with Raid that when it comes to Palestinian politics, it is, uh, you know, like the main issue and the main power play for, for, for an emerging leader for presidency is the Palestinian public, is the Palestinian institutions. In terms of external uh, players, you know, without any uh, 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 sort of like precedence of order or ranking, uh, I would say, you know, Israel is, is one of the key players uh, in, when it comes to this because, you know, in the reality of today, any president, any Palestinian leadership that sits in Ramallah will have to reconcile one way or the other with all the PLO agreements signed with Israel. Otherwise, we're going into a conflict. And as such, we will not be talking about, you know, a PA that we uh, that we know. I think this lesson is very clear in, in, in all the contenders uh, sort of like minds. Uh, we are, again, I affirm that we are talking about the current state of play. I'm not talking, you know, like two years in, in the future because, you know, it will change with the change of possible individuals and contenders. But as a, you know, general uh, guideline, I would actually say that you know, any Palestinian leader who, who, who contender to uh, become a Palestinian leader understands the power politics in the region. And I think, you know, again, there are no uh, uh, sound thinking on their part that, you know, agreements with Israel will, be, will have to be uh, uh, respected. In that sense, I would also point to, you know, like point out that uh, Israel did, in, in a way, actually uh, live with uh, leaders of Hamas in Gaza, governing the Gaza Strip, and they abandoned what seemed, what appeared to be in the past, you know, Israel's preference for a Palestinian leader, whether it's X or Y, whether it's Arafat versus Abu Mazen or, uh, you know, other names that uh, were once preferred. Today, Israel, I, I, the way I see it, at least, that since 2007, when Hamas took over Gaza, there was no 
genuine or real attempt for Israel to collapse or to topple, uh, you know, the Hamas regime in Gaza. In fact, they lived with it and they let it grow so long, you know, they used a tactic or a policy or a strategy of stick and carrot, but basically they, they, they lived with that situation and did not interfere in internal politics to collapse and change leadership. So I don't really think that they would do uh, uh, that when it comes to uh, the West Bank unless, you know, we go into a conflict. Other players, and I would want to go to uh, Emirates because, you know, there were attempts to actually try and intervene uh, or interfere, rather, uh, depending how you see it, in trying to bring back Dahlan as a as a player in Palestinian politics. I myself was a witness to one of those uh, attempts that were uh, completely rejected by President Abbas. And unlike, unlike the, uh, you know, the traditional wisdom out there that if President Abbas is not, is no longer, uh, you know, a player, then Dahlan can come back. I think, frankly, you know, this is a wrong assumption. I think if he, you know, uh, even in the absence of President Abbas, Dahlan, it would be harder for Dahlan to come back to Palestinian politics simply because he would be seen as an outsider or like an insider supported by an outside state that is trying to insert him or install him as a, you know, as a leader of the Palestinians. And the other power centers will very fiercely uh, oppose that. Also, you know, I would add Saudi Arabia to the mix, Jordan, Egypt, as you mentioned, even Qatar and other countries may have their own uh, wishes and their own preferences. But I think the roles that they will have to, uh, you know, that they could play are limited and they could backfire easily. And that includes Jordan, by the way. I, I would actually say, as an advice, those countries should not, but it's not up to me. Uh, again, anyone who has enough support and legitimacy within the Palestinian uh, uh, leadership circles who emerges as someone who can actually move forward, uh, uh, continues with the uh, respecting the PLO agreements, the peaceful resolution uh, conflict with, uh, with Israel, it's up to the Palestinian people within that context to actually choose who of the different contenders. I Wraith, I want to give you the final word and just, you know, exp- explain this this issue, because I felt being in Ramallah during the summer of 2021, that this concern of the, of the people around Abbas, that they, Sinwar wants to use any popularity that emerged from the May crisis to him to leverage that in terms of trying to take over the PLO without making any ideological concessions on Israel. And uh, this is viewed as political suicide for the PA. And their view is you want to join the leadership, you have to, um, you know, pay in some sort of ideological currency to accept that Israeli-Palestinian agreements. So how do you see the Hamas role to be a spoiler uh, from the outside or to try to, you know, come on the inside and, and shape the future? Um Maybe a word about Hamas, first of all. Uh, I mean, Hamas is not as unified as it looks from the outside. Um, Hamas has its own internal tensions. Sinwar himself, just narrowly, narrowly, by literally one vote, managed to uh, win the internal Hamas elections uh, in Gaza. There are different views within Hamas. Sinwar is being challenged by the external leadership of uh, Hamas. Uh, some of the names that you might be familiar with, uh, Khaled Mish'al, uh, Musa Marzouk, these kinds of... So Hamas, it's very hard to speak specifically you know, about Hamas and its direction, uh, etc. But there is no doubt, as we mentioned before, that Hamas has an aspire, uh, aspires to... Uh, rule the Palestinian political system, whether through the PLO or the PA, uh, etc. Now, how does that affect the prospects of uh, reconciliation, uh, you know, the succession or post-succession? I think that, first of all, reconciliation has failed so many times because there are deep structural problems. Not only, you know, a question of lack of chemistry between Abbas and uh, Hamas. No, it's deeper than that. It's ideological, it's political, and let's not forget Hamas has a military wing uh, that has its own agenda. So in the long term, I just simply do not see a reconciliation because as Ibrahim rightly said, uh, a reconciliation that Hamas will accept will only be on its terms. And if the PA and Fatah and the PLO accept Hamas's terms, then there is no, uh, you know, that, that's the end of them, as it were. That said, during the succession phase, that that particular uh, uh, period, everyone would either want Hamas on their side or maybe to neutralize Hamas. So you will hear all of the contenders, and they're already saying that all of them will talk about unity. Some of them will even take steps towards unity, and we say, you know, similar to what uh, Rajub and Aruri uh, did. But all of this will be tactical. At the end of the day, they would want Hamas's support or Hamas's neutralization during the transition period. But none of them, I think, uh, is willing right now to play the, pay the price that Hamas is demanding. 
which is to move towards Hamas's ideological camp. And Hamas doesn't feel any particular rush to uh, pay the price itself and move towards the PA's uh, ideological camp. So unfortunately, I see that uh, the division is there to stay for a long time uh, and every talk of reconciliation will simply be tactical. Well, I want to thank so much uh, Ibrahim Dalal, who's joining us from Ramallah, and Raythel Omari is joining us from the Washington area. I want to thank you very much for really delving into the complexities of Palestinian politics, looking forward to seeing how this plays out, and uh, we'll just have to stay tuned as this issue of Palestinian succession will continue to loom over the future. I want to thank both of you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. We've heard a fascinating conversation with Ben Kaspit and Tal Schneider asking the question about the durability of the new Bennett-Lapid government. It is certainly diverse, and the question is, is it cohesive? It seems to me, listening to our guests, it's up to three people. It's certainly up to Bennett and Lapid themselves. Their warm relationship, their sense of trust kept this government together so far. The third person at the center of the government is someone who's not even in the government, Benjamin Netanyahu. The fact that he looms in the opposition and his continued presence might be the glue that enables the government to fulfill its days. So we will have to see. Now on the Palestinian side, we had a really interesting discussion with Raythel Omari in Washington and Ibrahim Dalalsha in Ramallah, two people who very closely follow the issue of Palestinian political dynamics and potential succession. What happens there is also complex, as, as we heard. But I think when we think about all these external forces that could influence it, I remember 1982. Israel thought by going into Lebanon, it could decide who is going to be the new president of Lebanon, Bashir Jamal. But in the end, Israel learned a lesson, which is it's very hard to politically engineer an Arab country if you're a Jewish state. I think it's going to bound to be true here, too. There'll be a lot of talk of external forces that could shape this succession, whether it's in the Persian Gulf, whether it's Jordan, whether it's Egypt, whether it's Israel. I think at the end of the day, it's going to be up to the Palestinians themselves who know the dynamics more intimately than anyone. And ultimately, because these things happen in a certain real time, uh, ultimately it will come down to the Palestinians. So I say stay tuned, whether it comes to the durability of the Bennett Lapid government or the political dynamics on the Palestinian side. Sadly, this is the last episode of Season 3. I hope you've enjoyed these three episodes and it got you thinking. If you haven't listened to all 10, go back to your favorite podcast app to subscribe so you could easily find them of this series or any of the 30 episodes of Seasons 1, 2, and 3. We hope to be with you again for Season 4. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Sheridan Cole, and our researcher, Alex Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute. And finally, Richard Myron and Lindsay Riley, our production team at Earshot Strategies. Thank you all.